Hello, I'm Keith Frankish, and my guest today is Professor Nicholas Humphrey. Professor Humphrey is a distinguished theoretical psychologist. He's held a variety of academic posts in Oxford, Cambridge, New York, and London, and is currently Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the London School of Economics and a visiting professor of philosophy at the New College of the Humanities. Nick has a wide range of interests. He's worked on the neuropsychology of vision and he was the first to demonstrate the existence of what's come to be called blindsight. He's done pioneering work on the social function of the intellect. He's done experiments in evolutionary aesthetics, argued for the impossibility of paranormal phenomena, studied multiple personality disorder, the placebo effect and many other topics. But, above all, he's tried to unravel the central mystery of the mind, consciousness. And for the last two decades, he's developed a new and far-reaching theory of the nature and function of consciousness. And Nick's books include Consciousness Regained, The Inner Eye, History of the Mind, Leaps of Faith, The Mind Made Flesh, Seeing Red, and most recently, Soul Dust. He's also worked on numerous TV and radio documentaries, and he wrote and presented a 10-part TV series on the evolution of social intelligence. He's been the recipient of numerous honours and prizes. That's just the headline news about Nick. You can find a lot more about him from his website, uh, www.humphrey.org.uk, where you will find videos and uh, of Nick talking about his work, as well as copies of his many academic papers. Nick, hello. We've, there's so much we could talk about. You've done, as that brief introduction shows, you've explored many fascinating areas of psychology. But what I'd really like to talk to you about is your theory of consciousness. Yes, you left, you left off the subtitle of my most recent book, which is, I'm sure we're going to get to it. It was called Soul Dust, The Magic of Consciousness. Ah, the, that, that indeed is very important. The, the role that the notion of magic plays in your account of consciousness is something that I will get into. And it's, it's something, I think, on which we both agree that there's a certain sense in which talking about magic here is, is, is quite appropriate. But before we get into your, your current theory and the way you're currently exploring and extending it, can I just ask you a bit about the, the background uh, to, your, to that theory and how you got interested in consciousness in the first place and how you're thinking about it has evolved. And I, I know you trained as an experimental psychologist in the late 1960s and your early work was on the neuropsychology of vision. So I guess at that time there was something of a taboo on scientists theorizing about consciousness. Did you feel that that was something you particularly wanted to challenge? No, I, I don't think I did. I didn't take it seriously at the time, and I don't think actually the rest of the world took it very seriously at the time. There was a particular branch of experimental psychology following on from hardline behaviorism, which tried to outlaw use of consciousness in explaining behavior. But I think the rest of the world, including philosophy and a lot of psychology, got on and, and carried on as normal, taking account of what is clearly one of the chief motivators and the characteristics of the human mind and which is the way in which we think of all other human beings. In particular, though, coming back to my own, my own career there, as you say, I worked on vision early on and in a way I've stayed with vision ever since. You mentioned one of my books is called Seeing Red and again and again when I come back to think about consciousness, I, like I guess so many other people, 
really have in mind visual sensation. Of course, we talk about sounds and smells and tastes and things as well, but the paradigm case of consciousness and the way the most striking and extraordinary one is seeing colors. But I suppose the crucial thing was that early on in my research, I was working on the brain mechanisms underlying vision and the work I did then made me all too well aware of the paradoxes of visual perception and visual sensation and how little we really understand about it. We still don't understand the nature of visual consciousness. We know a lot about cognitive sides of vision, of how we perceive depth and categorize objects and the rest of it. But when it comes to the crucial issue of why it's like what it is like for human beings to have visual experiences, we're still very much in the dark. And what brought this home to me early on in my research was that I had the opportunity to work with a monkey. She was called Helen. She wasn't my own experimental animal to begin with. She was a, a monkey who Larry Weiskrantz had been working on in the Cambridge Psychology Lab. He had removed the visual cortex from the back of the brain in order to discover what effects that would have on vision. Well, as everybody would have expected, the effects were pretty drastic. Immediately after the operation, Helen seemed blind. Two years later, she was effectively blind as well. Larry Weisskrantz had shown that she could discriminate overall luminance, whether, you know, lightness from dark, but that was just about all there was to it. Now, I had a hunch about this. I thought that Helen, like all other uh, mammals, has two visible systems. She has the modern one based on the cortex, but she also has a much more ancient visual system, which in fact goes right back to the reptiles based in the midbrain. And so far as we knew, that part of the brain was still intact in this monkey. And so when Larry Weisskrantz was away, I took the opportunity to, to test out some ideas I had about whether or not Helen was as blind as she seemed to be. So I did the obvious thing. I just went and sat with her. I interacted with her. I tried to watch for cues that she might, in fact, have some visual capacity, which she hadn't yet demonstrated in the lab tests. And really, within a few hours, it became quite obvious to me that this monkey was not as blind as she seemed to be, and as everybody assumed she had to be after the damage to the visual cortex. So I spent the next week basically just playing with this animal. I was, you know, would, would offer her bits of apple, I'd wave lights in front of her eyes, I'd touch her in unexpected places and so on, and all the time looking for any evidence that she was using visual cues to find out what was going on. And it became immediately apparent that in fact there was a lot more to it than anybody had guessed. Within a week she was able to reach out and touch my hand very accurately when I held it up in front of her and wiggled it carrying a piece of apple. I'd made a stick with a light on the end of it which I could flash and in the dark I I, I held it up for her to see if she could reach out to touch the light. Again, I would reward her with a piece of apple. She enjoyed these games, I enjoyed them, and within a week I was quite certain that Helen was not blind. So I sent a telegram to Larry Weiskrantz. He was away at a conference in Basel. Those days we did those kind of things. The telegram said, I've taught Helen to see. Larry came back from his conference, uh, not in too good a temper. I he came into the lab, he said, Larry, you must come, you know, come and look what's happened. Um, he said, OK, tomorrow, I haven't got time immediately, got to catch up and so on. Eventually, I persuaded him to come and see the transformation which had happened to that, to that previously blind monkey. And, of course, he was completely persuaded. Within a month, we had sent off a paper to Nature um, called Vision in Monkeys After uh, Destruction of the Removal of the Stride Cortex. Larry, of course had then to let me go on with, with that, that line of research. 
uh, Helen would probably have been killed and her brain sectioned and so on and the results published showing that she hadn't, been, hadn't recovered vision if it hadn't been that I now got the chance to, to see if I could develop it further and so in fact I worked with this monkey Helen for the next seven years she came with me from Cambridge to Oxford and then from Oxford back to Cambridge again the transformation, the most dramatic transformation occurred when having I'd worked with her in, in Oxford, in the lab there, I'd found that she had extremely good spatial vision, visual acuity, and so on. She could reach out and, and, and catch a passing fly, indeed. But when I came back to, to Cambridge, I came to a different kind of lab. I came to the Department of Animal Behaviour at Mattingly. Now, there, though, I met a rather different kind of psychologist. Though nobody there studied the brain as such. Nobody did experiments in labs. It was a place where people studied animals in the wild. While I was there, uh, a visiting scientist from Paris came, Marie Bertrand. I talked to her about Helen, and I showed her what Helen could do. Helen was now able to re reach out and touch my hand when I held it up to her. I took, I mean, I did all sorts of other tests showing rather formal visual capacities. Marie said, come on, Nick, what we need to do is to, is, is to take... Helen out for a walk. I said, look, don't be crazy. She's lived in, the, in, the, in a cage for at least the last six years. She will just go berserk if we let her out of the cage. She'll be scared out of her life. She won't know what's happening. Marais said, leave it to me. And I went out of the room where the monkeys were being held. Marais opened the cage. Helen, for the first time in her life, came in the last few years anyway, crawled down nervously out of the cage, found the floor, and immediately uh, was panicked. Marie caught her. Marie held her arms back. Marie slapped her face. There was a kind of struggle which went on between them, and ten minutes later, Helen was now effectively a domesticated animal. Helen's behaviour completely turned around. She became docile, easygoing. From then on, I could now interact with this monkey in ways I had never been able to before. And so I took her out in the country. I put on a lead, I went for walks around the village, and once she had that opportunity to develop the vision which she, which had begun to recover and her, the world opened up, it was quite obvious that she now had good spatial vision. She would climb a tree and when, when, when she came to it she would sit in the tree and catch bugs as they went by and so on. In every possible way she now began to look very much like a normal monkey. How could that have happened? Well, we'll come to that later in terms of the brain, but the, how could it be happening at the level of her experience? What puzzled me was to know, well, how can a monkey have been apparently so blind and apparently have believed that she was blind and yet now have this demonstrable capacity to use, use uh, her visual, uh, what's left of her visual brain? Various clues were there for me. One thing which struck me was that she, although she did have extremely, she was very sophisticated in her visual capacities, she only had them provided she didn't try too hard. If she was frightened, for example, and began to search anxiously around the room, vision, it was really as if she could only see provided she uh, was relaxed about it and didn't have to think about it too much. There was a notorious occasion when probably the world's most famous neuropsychologist, Luke Teuber, came from MIT. He came from Cambridge Mass to visit Helen at the lab in, 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 in Cambridge, England, just to, just, just to see this new marvel. I let him into the room. Helen was let out of her cage. She was in an arena where she could run around and pick things up and avoid obstacles and so on. Then she sensed that there was a stranger in the room. She panicked. 
Um, she bumped into things. Uh, she couldn't find anything. She appeared to be exactly what everyone would have said to begin with. She was effectively a blind monkey. Well, Tybo, of course, was uh, not too impressed. Um, I persuaded him to go outside the room and to watch on a TV monitor. And, and Helen got back to her, herself again and began to show off in the ways in which I'd hoped she would do with him in the room. Anyhow, so these, these kind of aspects of her vision made me wonder what it was like for Helen to see. And it occurred to me that in some way this could be a kind of vision of which she herself was unaware. I wrote a paper for the New Scientist at that point. The paper was called Seeing and Nothingness. And in it I argued that while Helen had recovered various perceptual skills, she actually didn't know that she had and therefore she couldn't reflect on her own vision and if she thought about it, she seemed to be blind. I ended up that paper by saying that perhaps with a new definition of seeing we will so discover that there's more to seeing than meets either the patient's or the scientist's eye. Mm. Well, I didn't know quite what I meant by that, but as many of your listeners I'm sure will, will, will know, within a year or two there was a very dramatic discovery with human beings. Barry Weiskrantz, having followed my work and of course been very surprised and impressed by it, decided to test a human subject who had a visual damage to the visual cortex using the kind of techniques I'd used with Helen. I mean, basically getting the, the, the patient to demonstrate vision without having to think about it, without having to reflect on it. And to do that, Weisskrantz said to this famous patient, DB he's called, he's, he's still alive. Uh, no, he's not still alive, he's died, I'm afraid. So anyway, it was many years ago. Said to him, look, I realize that in this part of your visual field, you're blind. We know you can't see anything there. You've been telling us that for all the weeks you've been here undergoing tests. DB, by the way, had only damage to half the visual cortex, so he could see perfectly well on one side. It was in one side of his visual field he was blind. But in that part of the visual field, uh, he said he was blind. And Weisskrantz said, well, yeah, okay, and don't, be, don't be put off by what I'm going to ask you, but supposing you weren't blind, and supposing I was to hold up a light in the visual field, could you guess where it is. I mean, initially it was uh, rather taken aback to be asked to do such a take some, do such a thing as to guess about a light he couldn't see, but he agreed to play along and he reached straight to the light. Of course, Weisskrantz moved it again and DB reached to it in its new position. It turned out that in many ways DB was beginning to show the kind of vision which I had found very early on with Helen, an ability to detect the position of lights and to detect movement and so on. And yet all the while he said there was nothing there. Weisskrantz coined the word blindside. It's not my, not my word. It's a wonderful word for this new phenomenon. Um, and uh, blindsight came to be known as the condition under which you should a, a human subject, or I suppose we could say equally an animal subject, can demonstrate behaviorally uh, an ability to use visual information, but all the while seems unaware that at the level of consciousness that the, he or she has that capacity. Well, this, of course, I mean, I'd worked with this monkey for a very long time and spent a great deal of time thinking about it. I hadn't ever put it in those terms, but what I'd been thinking about was the possibility of blind sight. And, of course, this stirred my embryonic interest in the nature of consciousness. If you can separate uh, behavior from awareness, then what exactly can be going on? Mm. Parallel to this, uh, you also mentioned this in your introduction, I was doing some work on monkey aesthetics. I, I, 
rather ambitiously had decided to try and discover whether monkeys had an aesthetic sense and whether they would enjoy works of art or music or whatever it might be. Of course, wildly too ambitious and ever soon um, brought up sharply against the evidence that they didn't give a damn about uh, paintings or, or, or music or whatever it might be. But I did discover that they showed very strong colour preferences. Mm-hmm. And all the monkeys I tested showed these remarkable and consistent likes and dislikes for large fields of colour. They intensely disliked red light. They were happy and comfortable in green or blue light. If they tried to choose between them, they would spend about five times as long, let's say, in blue light as in red light. But I then went on to, to see how this interacted with other aspects of vision. And, for example, I would show them a black and white Mickey Mouse film, either in black and white or in blue or in red. Fascinating things turned out. It turned out whenever there was something informationally exciting in the, in the stimulus, um, like a Mickey Mouse film, they would always watch it, even if it was coloured red or, or blue. It didn't matter. Um, their interest in the film seemed to override their dislike of the colour behind it. As soon as they got bored with it, the colour preferences came mm-hmm. So if I showed them a loop, for example, they would start off by watching it intensely and then eventually end up avoiding it. Well, to cut a long story short about this, I did a lot of tests using different kinds of materials and came up with a mathematical model which showed that there seemed to be two distinct things going on in governing their preferences. What I called their interest in the stimulus and their pleasure or unpleasure in the stimulus. And I wrote a paper on that for perception and I introduced the mathematical model. It's even to this day, I can't quite believe it worked so well. It could predict um, with finest detail of from one situation to the next, how much time the monkey would spend watching the stimulus, depending on how interested he or she was in it, and how much the colour, or for that matter, used uh, loud noise as, as an aversive stimulus, how much the sound offended her. In the introduction to that paper, I quoted Thomas Reed, great, great uh, uh, Enlightenment Scottish philosopher, who says that the, the senses have a double province to make us perceive and to make us feel, and I realised that I was working on that very distinction I thought I was. It seemed that the monkeys could choose, sometimes their their behaviour was governed by their perception, sometimes it was governed by their feelings. Now, to connect that back to consciousness, of course, I discovered with blindsight that the monkeys' behaviour could be governed by by perception, but otherwise um, there seemed to be no feeling attached to it at all. I came to a view of what the hub mind works, which basically makes this distinction central, the difference between sensation and perception. Mm-hmm. I argued that in blindsight, and in the case of Helen, sensation had gone, but perception mm-hmm. remained. Mm-hmm. I argued that when I was looking for colour preferences and aesthetic responses in monkeys, sensation could be dominated by perception, but as soon as perception uh, became uninformative, sensation came in and overrode it. Other things converged on this idea as a central way of looking at the nature of experience and I've really been pushing that idea ever since and I repeatedly go back to to Thomas Reed as the authority on it, I think Reed's writings on it are absolutely brilliant and original and I'm very much the only person who seems to think that anymore, Um, people still quote Thomas Reed but not for for those reasons, they look at at his morals and his moral philosophy and so on very few people are interested in this absolutely crucial distinction between mm-hmm. perception and sensation and yet Thomas Reed said 
outright back in the 1910s, oh, sorry, 1790, I should say, that it's the failure to make this distinction which is the cause of most of the problems in philosophy. Again, again, he says philosophers have muddled up perception mm-hmm. and sensation. Mm-hmm. So part of my work has really been trying to unmodel that and to make these make this crucial distinction, and through that to get down to the to what I still think is the central problem of consciousness, which isn't perception. It is sensation. We know an awful lot about how perception works now. Neuropsychology, following on from you know, my work, Hubert Weasel, Larry Weiskrantz and others, is, has made huge advances in understanding the cognitive side of, of visual information processing. But it hasn't even begun to get to grips in any way. People haven't been interested in the qualitative side of sensory Mm-hmm. And I think this you know, is, still remains a wide open field, both mm-hmm. for more refined philosophy, but also, of course, for, in the end, the, the physiology and neuropsychology mm-hmm. will have to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. So just, just to get the, 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 the gist of that connection there between Helen and the, the aesthetic preferences, the idea is that Helen would have been able to get information uh, from the world, just as the monkey could see what was happening in the cartoon, but she wouldn't have had any of these responses, these effective responses. Yes. She wouldn't have preferred one colour. I didn't test that. But, but that's, the, that's how it comes together there. And it, it's wonderful how you describe it, because you, you bring it together experimental work with your knowledge of philosophy, and I, mean, I think your work is a very good example of the approach that's needed to consciousness, which is one that is very broad-ranging, that is able to draw on 18th century philosophy of, of perception and on modern experimental work on in neuropsychology. So, and I think that's a perspective that very few people have been able to develop. I'd say, I mean, I was amazingly lucky <laughs> to have the, have the windows open for them, which I did. I mean, the fact that, you know, I, this monkey Helen was in the lab at a time when Larry uh, wasn't, wasn't around and I had time on my hands. For example, the fact that I was fortunate enough to, you know, to, to have a supervisor who would let me follow my bent in developing the work with her and do outrageous things like putting a, a, a monkey with no visual cortex on a lead and walking around a village. Of course it would be forbidden by all the bylaws. And, um, <laughs> but I'll tell you another remarkable piece of luck I had. In relation to this, Dan Dennett sometimes, he said in a review of one of my books, I think it was Seeing Red, he said just perhaps Humphrey's seen things which none of us have seen and that's why he knows something which we don't but I simply can't get it. Well, I'll tell you one thing which Dennett had not seen in which I was amazingly fortunate. Because of the work I'd done with Helen, when a, a patient turned up at the Queen's Square in the 1970s who was apparently blind, Elizabeth Warrington, the neuropsychologist there, decided to call me in to, 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 mm-hmm. uh, to, to uh, see what I could find out about her. The story of this young woman, she was called HD, she was from Persia, was that she'd had cataracts from smallpox, I think from the age of two or so, which had completely covered her eyes and had made pattern vision impossible for her. Now, we know from studies on animals, and also, of course, in direct studies on humans, that if you don't have patterned visual perception early in life, mm-hmm. your visual cortex is likely to degenerate. Mm-hmm. So it was all too likely that by the age of 21, which she was when I met her, she, in fact, didn't have a functioning visual cortex. Mm-hmm. The reason I met her was she'd been brought from Russia to, to London to have the cataracts removed because she'd been persuaded by an eye surgeon that if she did that, her vision would be restored. She ought to have known better. There's lots of reasons now to think that it doesn't work. If, you, if, it's, if someone's been blind from early in life and they have their retinas restored, the brain can no longer cope with visual information. But of course, 
there was the possibility that after that, after her sight was, was restored, she might now have some kind of blind sight. She might be capable of, of, of sensing things, of perceiving things at that purely perceptual, non-sensory level. And so I decided to try with her the things I'd tried with Helen. I took her for walks in the park, held her hand. We, uh, I remember walking through St. James's Park and pointing out crocuses in the spring day and seeing a pigeon which was alighting in Trafalgar Square and so on. Lo and behold, this young woman who was convinced that the operation had been a failure and that she was quite blind discovered that, in fact, she did have some visual capacity that she hadn't expected or, or she rather hoped to have but hadn't realised that she that, that, that she had recovered after the operation. And so we improved on that and after a bit uh, it didn't go very far but it turned out that you know she had some useful functioning vision left to her. She could reach for a door handle for example to open it. She'd step up when she came to her curb. Now that's, so she had some kind of perception left but did she have any kind of sensation? Mm-hmm. She was sure that she hadn't. Mm-hmm. She said, well, yeah, I know you've demonstrated that I can see, but what's it mean to me? I, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I thought vision would be like. She was a very intelligent young woman. She'd spent mm-hmm. her years of, of youth and blindness caring and reading the, uh, the poets and wondering and imagining what it must be like to live in a world of colours and bright. And, bright. Mm-hmm. and that's what she thought would be returned to her after right. the cataracts were removed. Now here she was, mm-hmm. to her own mind she'd apparently been blind, this interfering psychologist from Cambridge had shown her she wasn't as blind as she might as, as, as people this as it seemed to her she was, but so what? The vision she got back was completely uninteresting to her, I mean unimportant to her. She, it put it this way, it hadn't enlarged herself of her sense of who she was, and I think the reason was, it's because it's sensation which lies behind our sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. If you don't have sensations, you can have any amount of cognitive skills, and yet the central part of your being um, is absent. Now, this young woman, of course, had other uh, sensory inputs, sounds and tastes and things like that. She, wasn't, she didn't have no self at all, but it seemed that the return of vision had not brought back her visual self. Unlike Helen, she had lots of expectations mm-hmm. and uh, needs from sensation which, which, which were, couldn't be met by this so whereas for Helen this was a much smaller part of what vision was I mean and, and HD's reaction was, was, was very remarkable she got very depressed hopes had been dashed in the hospital she tried to kill herself of course being now she didn't succeed she, be, she went into a kind of decline but she pulled herself out of it in the bravest way possible she put on her dark glasses again and took up her white stick went back to being blind and since then she's made a very successful career as a blind person she gave up on this failed experiment and yet I suspect if she took her glasses off again she would still find that she had a form of blind sight but mm-hmm. it doesn't, didn't seem to matter to her mm-hmm. now mattering that's the crucial thing again I've come to this again and again mm-hmm. I said that sensations matter to us in terms of our aesthetic preferences mm-hmm. they matter to us in terms of our sense of self they matter to us in terms of positioning us and making us mm-hmm. feel safe in the world without them we can become kind of visually skilled robots but we don't have this mm-hmm. core part of vision which is where consciousness visual consciousness seems to me to really make its mark and so I it's part of these all the reasons why in my later work I've mm. I've concentrated on that central issue what is sensation mm. why is it so important to us how does it work and, and what you've done you've 
Reed was your inspiration for this, you say, but you've gone on to construct a theory of the nature of sensation, which presents it as a kind of active response to the world. And uh, you've coined a new term to, to describe this. It's an, an addition to our, to our conceptual vocabulary, and you call it sentition, don't you? Um, could you perhaps introduce that, that notion for us? Well, yes, I, I, I was searching for what, how to think about sensation. And so I questioned myself and wrote, wrote down a list of what are the things which make sensation different from perception, for example. Some very obvious things, like the fact that we own sensations, they're ours, they could, they're private, they couldn't be anyone else's. They're completely immediate to us, they involve our body in some mm. way. Sensation's always in our eyes, in our fingers, in our, on our tongue or whatever it may be. And it, it occurred to me that the obvious analogy for that was action. We mm. own the things we do. We act with our bodies. Um, we are immediately aware of, of, of our own inactions, our own volitions. No one can, can, can no one else is privy to what we do with our, our bodies from the inside. And so it seemed to me that with these formal analogies, and maybe we should be looking at that as more than the formal analogy, mm. maybe sensation did in fact involve some kind of doing. It was an active process. So I needed a word for that, and I used the word which was halfway between sensation and volition. I called it sentition. Now I've gone on to develop an idea of, of how sentition arose in evolution as a very primitive way of responding visually to the world, and how it was elaborated in the animals which have led up to uh, modern-day mammals, and particularly to human beings. And the crucial idea is, I said, look, I think that the first way animals responded to lights and sounds and smells and so on was by doing something about them and they did that with their bodies and that's how you do things initially uh, primitive organism would just have wriggled in some way on the information was coming from the central ganglion from the brain let's say in response to a stimulus saying do this or do that and the animal responded with a particular bit of its body it responded in a particular way appropriate to the stimulus you don't want to do the same thing to everything which comes in. So some of these wriggles would have been wriggles of rejection, others would have been wriggles of acceptance. There was clearly a, an evaluative mm-hmm. part to the response, and we'll, we'll see later that's crucial. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, but sentition arose as an animal's a form of bodily expression, how the animal feels about what's happening at its body's surface. That's how it began, but we couldn't say wriggling for the rest of the evolution. Something had to change. All these primitive reactions were no, no longer appropriate as our nervous systems, our bodies became more sophisticated. But something had, had meanwhile been built on sentition. First of all, animals simply responded. There wasn't, they didn't keep these responses in mind in any way. They weren't being represented. But as their brains became more sophisticated and they want to use them to make predictions and to, and to uh, perhaps store memories and so on, they wanted some way of representing what the stimulus was, which had evoked this response. Now, how to do that? Well, you could do various things. You could start analysing the stimulus all over again in some way. I think that did later happen, led on to perception. But later, an alternative would be you could say, you could say you could realise that I already have and the description of the stimulus and how I feel about it, it's there in the motor commands I'm sending out to perform the response. The response is a meaningful response. If I monitor my own response, I will understand the meaning of the stimulus. And so I think that the first 
that we begin to call it sensation maybe mm -hmm. first representations of sensory stimuli and what they mean where they are in the body their quality and so on um, was being was being uh, uh, discovered by the animal by monitoring its own response but as I said a moment ago we couldn't go on making these responses as they'd been from the start for the rest of our evolutionary history so we wanted perhaps some way of giving up on the actual bodily expressions but nonetheless we, know we still needed our ancestors still needed some way of representing the stimulus and what they'd been using was these internal responses they'd been using sentition and so the trick I suggest is that what they did was simply to internalize the response privatize it if you can, if you can borrow that word instead of being a real response actually producing a, a, an action at the body surface the response became a virtual response and I've got a detailed account of why this would have involved it actually being a response which didn't let go of the of the of the original body part altogether, but which actually came to track the incoming sensory nerve. So the response became internalised. It eventually ended up as a response which was occurring just within the brain, and in fact targeting the sensory cortex to which the stimulus information was being was being sent. Now. You know, things sometimes you may think I'm, everything's falling into place too much into place in such a pat way. But let's 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 go go on as because as I thought it had done. What happens when you have a response which is overlapping with an incoming stimulus within the brain? Well, you've got the chance of feedback. Um, you've got the chance of creating some kind of sensory loop, and I think that's exactly what happened. Sensation which been, was being represented just by monitoring the, the outgoing res motor response, now could take off in a new way because the motor response was catching its own tail, as we like to put it this way. It had become part of a reverberating loop which was cycling around the brain and now what sensation w would correspond to would be reading of what this internal loop, the information that that is carrying. So from having been sensation, from having been just a representation of a motor response, an evaluative motor response addressed to the body surface, now became uh, lifted into another dimension in a way, because now it became a representation of not just how I feel about the stimulus, but how my brain feels about the stimulus. And what my brain seems to have done with it is to have turned it into in, into a reverberating activity within a loop, which, uh, as we can we'll talk no, no doubt later about this, could in fact go on to be developed by natural selection mm -hmm. all sorts of interesting strange properties if there was any reason to do that but we'll have to come to the reason why there might have been some reason to elaborate sensation in this way So the core idea then is that sensation arises with these evaluative responses to stimuli this, this, this kind of ac action you, you say we, we, it's not so much seeing red as reading yeah. responding to, to red in a certain way and then the overt response is, is suppressed and it's privatized, as you say. It's not suppressed exactly, but it becomes internalized, yes. It becomes internalized, and the outgoing signal then starts to interact with further new incoming sensory signals, creating a feedback loop, which is a sort of internal object now that can be monitored in its own right. Yes, is, is that's that, right. That's and then this this internal object now becomes a thing which can have meaning, significance, value for us, and which then can be subject, as you say, to, to selective pressures. And so then we have this whole new 
uh, area for potential development. New functions can arise from the monitoring of this internal feedback loop. Yes, and I mean, uh, the, the sequence you've just described there is in fact what I think happened in evolution. Mm-hmm. It's also what happened in the evolution of my own thinking about it. <laughs> my own writing moved from, in a history of the mind in 1991, mm-hmm. published, for example, I described, I coined the word sentition and I talked about mm-hmm. it, um, these internal responses which had, um, uh, with, which had so-called adverbial quality, I thought. They, I got to the point at which they'd been internalized, but I didn't really, take that point, take off with the idea that a consequence of that could that they would be that they could come to have all sorts, sorts of strange, weird, and wonderful properties. So when I wrote History of the Mind, I'd only, in a sense, got to the Mark I version of Sentition. Right, and the second version comes in when you stress the, the monitoring of this internal feedback loop, right. because then the feedback loop itself becomes something that has significance for us and can affect us in various ways, and therefore can come under selective pressure. Yes, and that, that's what I, I developed a few years later, when, particularly in my book, Seeing Red. Um, yes. I, I might as well tell you the history of that. I, after publishing A History of the Mind, I, I'd, gone, I'd done various... Well, I'd, I'd taken various holidays from the research I'd been doing. I'd been doing different things. Mm-hmm. I'd been uh, doing some work on parapsychology. I'd been yes. work on aesthetics and so on. In whatever the date, 2000-something or other, I was invited by uh, Harvard to give them a um, mind and brain distinguished lecture series. And I thought, uh, okay, I've got f- uh, f- four lectures, chance to do something new. And I wanted to return to my old love, which was this question of sensation, the nature of the hard problem, and so on. And so I took that opportunity to, to begin over again to revisit the story of sensation and sentition and to develop it um, in, in new ways. And that was then at which I, was at that point that I began to stress more and more strongly uh, the f- consequences for the nature of the self of um, sensations of these magical kinds. And that led me to think more and more strongly about uh, the evolutionary selective pressures which could right. be brought to bear. Because um, why do we need magic? Um, yes. It's yes. You know, One of the reasons why people, of course, object to my ideas about it is that it seems superfluous. Okay, mm-hmm. what's the point of dressing up sensations, sensations in these fancy ways? I mean, purely for our delight. <laughs> well, not, not quite, but partly for our delight, because our delight has major consequences for ourselves. So mm-hmm. our delight in being ourselves, our delight in being the kind of creatures that we are, living in a world which we ourselves paint with this fairy dust of sensation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, for the benefit of listeners who haven't um, yet read the book, uh, it's with the development of this feedback loop and the complexity of it that we start to introduce the dimension that we refer to as phenomenality, right? right. That, that this feedback loop assumes some strange temporal, apparently strange temporal and qualitative aspects which, when monitored, produce the thing we describe as phenomenality. The idea of that we're living in a thick present where sensations seem to live on a little bit beyond their actual time course in the, in, in the brain. Sensations seem to have a richness and a depth and a uh, ah, mysterious hold <laughs> exactly well, and, and that on, on your account is a consequence of the complexity of this feedback loop that is generated yeah it's a, I mean I think it's it's been designed in it, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't in the earlier days mm-hmm. it for reasons which I mean there must have been adaptive reasons for it mm-hmm. developed as a designed product of, of 
of, of the brain. And the, the, the question, of course, well, there are two questions. What exactly happened in the brain and where, where is it happening? And where, why did it happen? Right. Now, the question of what exactly is happening is one which um, I'm, I know I'm, it's, I, I'm, I'm whistling in the dark in a way. I'm, you know, this is, we've no real neurophysiological understanding of this, um, if you, even assuming it's the right story to tell about the brain. But I think that's not something we need to be too concerned with at the moment. There's an awful lot we don't know about the brain. Um, it's too often assumed, I guess, especially by people who are more impressed than they should be by 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 science and by neuropsychology, neuroscience in particular. It's assumed that we we've almost cracked the problem of how brains work. We're still only scratching the surface of it. There's um, vast amounts we don't understand about what's this thing in the brain, and therefore I think there's room for, to instantiate almost any model we might come up with <laughs> from a philosophical point of view about what maybe even necessarily must be the nature of conscious experience. Mm-hmm. And talking uh, uh, about the function of, of consciousness brings us nicely on to uh, your latest book, 2011 book, Soul Dust, which, is, which tells the story that you've just told. It, it begins with that story, but then goes on to discuss how, why this developed, why evolution selected for this, in a magic show, as you, as you refer to it, this, um, this, 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 this strange artifact that when monitored creates the impression that we have this inner theatre of, of sensation. And you tell a... It's a three-stage story, I think, isn't it? Um, there's first, it's, it's a story about, about the, the self, and then it's a story about, about the external world, how we project this richness onto the world around us, and then about its importance for mm. the social beings. And what's nice about this story, I think, is... Tell us a little bit more about it, but... It's built on the back of that theory of sensation that you that you outlined, but I think the story itself is not actually dependent on the details of that story. The actually evolutionary value of this thing that we have, the story that you tell, could be combined with other theories of the nature of sensation itself. The difference is, Keith, perhaps that I I think we we need to tell an evolutionary story because I think this occurred as a separate development in the evolution of the brain. Therefore, we must look for new functions for uh, for sensory phenomenology. If, as I guess most philosophers and neuroscientists would still assume, sensory phenomenology just was an accidental byproduct of perception or of brain functioning, you don't need a different explanation for it. I mean, you know, it may be that we're all enjoying uh, the the awareness, the nature of the awareness which comes with consciousness but nonetheless if this was in a sense just epiphenomenal and had uh, arisen purely as a result of neural complexity, we wouldn't be needing to look for a new explanation I think that's a really important point actually there because it's precisely because you've now separated thinking about sensation and the, the, the effective side of experience from the perceptual side that as you say you can get a story about the evolution of consciousness as such you can get it running I mean of course it's easy to tell a story about the evolution of perception I mean, mm. well I mean the amazing thing is that you know people who are now thought to be sort of making the running and understanding consciousness like Tononi for example with his ideas about um, informational complexity in the brain he says explicitly that you know that qualia, phenomenality and so on just emerge once you reach a particular level of complexity. If you ask him why, of course he has no answer. He thinks it's just the nature of the universe. If you ask him was was there any reason why brains should have been designed 
to produce this strain phenomenon. No, it was it was simply a, a side effect, a byproduct product. And I think by that's turning his back on evolutionary questions about consciousness, he's he's going to fail to see what really went on. Well, I, I think I think it's it's almost it's a default assumption in in thinking about consciousness that. It's a kind of byproduct, isn't it? You know, already we've had them for a long time now. For, for like blindsight, for example, you know, blindsight shows you can have perception without sensation. I, I don't. Nobody's bothered more than to measure phi, it's known as word for the degree of integration of, of brain information in a patient with blindsight. It may well be that it's lower than in a normal patient, but low enough to completely wipe out uh, sensation. I mean, mm-hmm. you no. Know, it would all be all be special beating would have mm-hmm. to be, and because I think basically he's barking up the wrong tree, mm-hmm. or he's not barking up the tree at all. <laughs> well, the thing I love about about Soldust is that it's a refutation of the view that consciousness is epiphenomenal, that it that it doesn't really do anything for us, that it's just mm-hmm. something that's there and that we have, and it's kind of nice, but whatever. It, I mean, you you point out that that view is really daft. I mean, when you think about it, going back to. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten her name. The, the patient who, um, who recovered HD who recovered her her sight. Plainly, what she was lacking there, what she expected to 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 recover, and what she didn't recover was something tremendously important. And mm. she'd got an idea of what it would be like from 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 her reading and so on. That thing that she was lacking was something so central and uh, so important to her that she couldn't even she couldn't bear to continue confronting its absence as it were and so she retreated into blindness the thing that that, that, I, that I love about Soldust is that, it, that it, it, it for the first time I think really takes seriously the idea that consciousness has an adaptive function that it evolved and that it's doing something very very important for us so, so maybe you can tell us a bit about that story well, I, I, guess I mean the problem was that having you know, I, I, I run with that idea in that book actually and also in Seeing Red I really push it to its limit saying one of the functions of uh, phenomenal consciousness is to make us feel that we live in a universe which can't be explained but basically the solution to the hard problem lies in the fact that the problem is hard that we come to think of ourselves as inexplicable creatures now some people have thought this that, that is simply pushing the limits of what's credible and yet I, 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 I kind of believe it I mean I think it is central to human beings that we think of ourselves as being metaphysically blessed we're not part of the normal world we don't you know we live in a physical world but in some deep sense when that's not all there is to being us and it's absolutely crucial to our sense of ourselves and it's crucial to our sense of other human beings basically the history of human culture has has been that making the most of what I, I don't avoid the word of the human soul um, mm-hmm. that uh, humans alone in the world maybe have this existence outside of nature in a, re- a realm of magic and most of, and, and everything we value about about other people and about interactions with them is in a way premised on the idea that they share in this magic too now it also of course leads on to all sorts of ideas about well where's the magic go when we're dead and so on and that in itself becomes a, a very significant and adaptive idea the idea that actually our lives don't end with with our, the end of our physical body which is a kind of semi-logical deduction about consciousness I mean if we're not dependent on our bodies then we needn't be extinguished when our bodies are annihilated and so the world over people have come to believe that that the phenomenal self could survive death now that 
also, now we're talking level of cultural evolution more than simple biological evolution, I think has been hugely significant in driving humans forward to exploit the world uh, and the possibilities in ways which no creature which didn't think at that level could do. I coined the word in soul, does I? Mm-hmm. The word the soul niche. I think that humans live in the soul niche. I mean niche in the conventional ecological sense of the world word there. It's, it's, it's environment to which we're adapted and to which we feel at home. I mean, mm-hmm. trout live in rivers or bed bugs live in beds. Humans live in soul land. And soul land is an astonishingly rich and uh, varied place to, 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 to inhabit. And it's, in the end, I mean, when the story is told, I think it's our sense that that's the kind of people we are, which has driven everything, which is, has been important about human civilized development. So, in, in a nutshell, consciousness has is a sort of benign illusion. It's an illusion of ourselves as having immaterial souls. As having so, something that cannot be explained by, by the physical sciences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's benign. Oh, the, yeah, the idea that it can't be explained, of course, is an illusion. Of course, of course I believe it can be explained. That's what sure, I would sure, sure. to do. Although, interesting enough, uh, are, of course, philosophers like, like Colin McGinn, or even to some extent, uh, dualists like David Chalmers, who think it can't be explained mm-hmm. in terms of conventional physics, at least. So that's an illusion. But in another sense, I'm becoming wary of using the term illusion for what we discover through consciousness. I said sensations express how we feel about what's happening to us. They started off as forms of bodily expression, and in some sense, that's the that's, that's what they still are. Their sense of what things mean to us. So when I see red light, I respond to it some primitive by reading, by monitoring my own reading, gets built up into this loop which then has all these strange and weird properties. It's still when I get to experience a red sensation, that's the way I feel about what's mm-hmm. happening to me. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I of course discuss this often, Keith. Um, <laughs> I say if it's the way I feel about what's happening to me, then mm-hmm. it's a mistake to call it an illusion. It is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important, I think, to recognize that when we say that, you know, pain or sensations of red or taste or smells or whatever are part of our central to our consciousness, it's important to recognize that they, um, mm-hmm. it be, that to call them an illusion is to undermine them in terms of why they've evolved and the significance they still have in our lives. The qualities we attribute to them are indeed illusory if analyzed at another level, but then, so the qualities of you know, many other things in the light mm-hmm. called illusions well I, I mean I'm, I'm an illusionist about phen- phenomenality as such, about phenomenal properties defined in the way that philosophers do and I think you are mm-hmm. too, uh, there, isn't, there isn't really some mysterious and explicable property here that, that is between which and the physical world there is an explanatory gap I think that is. but that's compatible I think with the illusion of having these properties expressing things that are perfectly, an illusion can express something that's perfectly real, I think you know, the, uh, a play or a poem or a piece of mm-hmm. fiction can express something perfect, I can write a poem that expresses mm-hmm. something very, very important and true, but it's still a fiction, it's something I've made up to express it's something a, real It's an invention, and that's yeah, the invention. 
wanted to use recently. Yeah, sure, it's an invention, but and I like the word invention because, of course, it has various meanings in in in, in English, and one of which, of course, is it's a kind of delightful treat, which is which is which is created by, let's say, uh, a composer as a feast for. It's you know, musical inventions aren't illusions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what they are, and we delight in them, and they're very clever constructions, and they're constructed because they bring delight to us, and and and, and therefore our enjoyment. I think, in just the same way, phenomenal sensations are inventions which have these magical qualities, but in the magic best sense of magic, which is something which seems mysterious and wonderful, and which we 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 we, we want to believe is true. Um, mm-hmm. I do like um, the metaphor of, of magic, and which which Dan Dennett uses a lot, and which of course you use in Solus. A, a magic show—it's uh, all about the effect. Um, the, the, the magician's term is effect, but it's not, you know, it's, what matters is the effect on the audience. And the ways of creating these effects are often quite mundane and quite. So, uh, to find out how a trick is done is, is, is to be disappointed almost always. And that's how I think of my consciousness—not in terms of there being some actual real in a show and here we, we might want to, to differ a little bit but in it there seeming to be a, a magical inner show and yeah, the effect so, of this yeah but one thing I mean I've used the analogy of a magician on stage and so on I think one of the, the limitations of that model is that of course when a magician appears to cut a, a, a woman in half mm-hmm. he hasn't really the woman has not been cut in half the illusion is that a physical event has happened which didn't really happen when we have the illusion of let's say of living in thick time, um, mm-hmm. that of, of inhabiting some dimension which is over and above the simple three dimensions of space and time. It's not clear that that, it we're not now saying, it's not a mistake that, it's in some sense we really are living in that new new space. And it's not, it, it, to see the difference between saying, that, okay, there's something in the physical world, which we are, in the world, conventional world, which we are being misled about, and know there's something in this new world which we've discovered or invented, and which has can't be gainsaid by saying, oh, well, it's not occurring in the physical world, because we're not experiencing it as happening in the physical world. Well, take the example of living in thick time. I think that's a good one. I mean, certainly, we're, we're, we're not living in, in thick time. We're not outside the, the temporal sequence of events. Um, but well, we geez, but that, okay, I, mean, I agree, you can, we can know. But, I mean, we're not living in, phys- in thick physical time because <laughs> mm-hmm. physical time can't be thick mm-hmm. but when I you know, use the term of course I'm uh, not claiming that, we're, we're, that this is a you know, contradiction I'm using it in the sense in which I'm saying well, this, the nearest thing I can think of is this mm-hmm. is living in the extended moment and it, in some real sense it has been extended because mm-hmm. it's hyper uh, high dimensional attractors in the brain have the capacity to actually represent you know, to be these things which we represent as living in thick I'm not the only person saying this by the way I'm, I'm happy to see this week in the New Scientist you probably haven't seen it yet there's a review article about whether or not consciousness is a shadow of hyperdimensional space and I'm not talking about my work at all but there are other people who are saying let me do, I have the paper right here I'm going to read you the last sentence of it um, uh, the neuroscientist that was quoting is someone called Henry Markham he says um, Markham thinks one day the approach could even crack the hardest problem of all consciousness quotes 
When we see a phenomenon that looks mysterious and difficult and intractable, there's a scientific possibility that what we're seeing and experiencing is a shadow projection from higher dimensional representations. He says, we need mathematics to climb up into those higher dimensions, then we'll understand how these shadows emerge. Consciousness may be a shadow. Now, uh, is that an illusion, what he's talking about? It, it's, it, it's not the same idea as mine, but it's, it obviously it's, quite, I think it's in the same neighborhood as mine. I, yes and no. I, mean, I think he seems to be looking at some, some kind of physical correlate of the experience that we have. You know, that, that we seem to be living in this thick time, so maybe there is some sense in which the universe itself exhibits this. Well, I think you're right. Yes, I think and, that's what, and that's what a lot of people are trying to do. The consciousness seems weird, so we must look for weirdness in the world to correspond to it. We must, man, that's how you get to be a panpsychist and all kinds yeah. of things. But uh, you don't need any of that, it seems to me, because what you're talking about is that we're inhabiting a kind of... These are, these are properties of our experienced world. Mm. We don't need to live in thick time. It's enough that we represent ourselves as living mm. in thick yeah, time. Right, you're right. You're right. It's, the analogy I would have is like, in, it's like reading a, a, a novel and you become absorbed in the novel. And in the novel, all kinds of things are true. In the novel, it's true that these you know, people live where they are and do what they do and are in love with each other and, and so on. All this is true in the, in, the, in the fictional world, and you can inhabit that fictional world, and it can be wonderful and life-enhancing, and, and, and that, I think, is what consciousness is. I know, it's like is, but except fiction doesn't seem to me to describe it correctly, because it's a, we talk about it as being a fictional novel, because it's a fictional account of a conventional world, which doesn't, doesn't involve any magic properties. I think that consciousness is an invention about a possible world, which doesn't map onto any other physical world which we would uh, want to say no it's a mistake it, 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 can't really, it can't really be happening because of that and well I, maybe we shouldn't get tied down with this I know I mean I in, in response to your wonderful illusionism article in Journal of Consciousness Studies I said I think there are, there are it, it may be a mistake to use the term illusion not only because for the person at the centre of it Mm-hmm. This is what it is, um, and to describe it as an illusion seems to devalue it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But also because we're playing into the hands of, you know, the uh, of the people who want to say that neuroscience and and, and mm-hmm. cognitive science and philosophy are in the business of trying to take away the yeah, I, from experience. And you know, some, philosophy and science isn't. We don't, we don't can't have it all our own way. We have to live in the world in which other people respond to what we say. And if it's not working, if the rhetoric isn't working, as increasingly we would find, for example, with Dan Dennett, you know, he offends people deeply by the language he uses. You and I, as disciples of, of Dan, of course, know very well what he means and what he doesn't, and regard some of this language just as bravado. But it's a mistake on his part to use it because, I mean, I've had I've said to Dan, look. We, I know you're right about this, um, and if anyone's right, I think you're, you're not right about everything, but don't think we're winning this battle. Um, you know, you've been saying these things for 20, 30 years now. Um, there was a time at which everything seemed to be swinging your direction and my direction. There's been a reaction to that in the form of more and more mysterious ideas coming from physics and um, mm-hmm. metaphysics and so on. You know, Major figures like Tom Nagel have been arguing mm-hmm. that not only can consciousness never be explained in material terms, but that it hasn't even evolved. And you know, we 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 can go on saying, oh, well, let them have mm-hmm. make their own mistakes. But nonetheless, if we if we don't provide them a way back, 
these critics. I think then we're doing our own project to disservice. I do take the this, this strategic point, and there's that terminology. It's, it's very hard to find a, a, a term that works. And as a one-word term, I, I, I still I still like it, illusionism, partly because it stresses that there's something that we are clearly rejecting, and that is the sort of realism. Mm. Uh, the idea that you must provide some correlate in the physical world to this stuff that you seem to be uh, experiencing, that there must be yep. uh, s- something strange and mysterious in reality that creates this strange and mysterious uh, uh, sense we have. And that, that has to be resisted, I think. It's, uh, really, if, you do, if, if, if you don't firmly signal that you're rejecting that, then there's a danger that, that people are going to adopt some position that, that takes all the things you say about the wonder and magic and, of consciousness, but reads that back into the physical world well, um, I, I, in a way that yes I agree and of course we both want to avoid that, avoid um, that. but what if you don't want realism what about surrealism <laughs> now, now this is bringing us to some of your latest work on this and yes one thing I would say and let me, let me just that one problem with calling it an illusion is that illusions sound like something that you want to get over you, know, you want to have yeah. dispelled you don't want to be a victim of an illusion that would be terrible whereas this illusion as you've argue is, is absolutely central to our sense of ourselves our place in the world, our social relations it's, it's a, a hugely important illusion and so the, the word illusion then becomes uh, a bit of an obstacle I, I agree to that extent um, so, and this relation to other uses of illusion and particularly to art which I think we both want to mm-hmm. talk about at some point yes. Ernst Gombrich wrote a wonderful book called Art and Illusion Yes, he's talking about how artists can create illusory representations of physical space and mm-hmm. events he's talking about illusion in that conventional mm-hmm. sense of you know there isn't really any space in the picture uh, corresponding to the space which, which we see there and so on that's one way of using illusion but actually artists themselves have often used it to mean something much more interesting than that so they talk about another level of truth they you know Again and again, you look there. People are fumbling for the words. Picasso, Van Gogh, others all say, "Well, I want to by showing my paintings are a lie, but they're a lie which is there to get closer to the truth." It's the kind of things they say. It's awkward language, but we can kind of see that when Van Gogh paints a chair, it's an illusion. Not, I mean, in one sense, it's a paint, it's an illusory representation of a chair. But the reason why it's such an interesting one is because it seems to have all sorts of other qualities. He says, my chair is more real than a real chair. Picasso says of his goat, sculpted goat, it's goatier than a real goat. They're looking for something, a kind of level of representation and a lie, which says, OK, well, we've invented something which is significant because it seems to take the essence of what we are depicting and lift it on to another level which to humans is interesting and significant and magic now I think it's at that level that I want to, uh, to, to, to place the term illusion if we're going to go on using it the, term, the, the, the sense in which these artists have used it and it's why I find there are a lot of useful analogies in art but I'm actually rather serious I, in response to your paper I suggested a possible alternative name might be phenomenal surrealism something which is more real than the real that when we have sensations I want to say they're redder than red in the way that Picasso's goat is goatier than a goat I think there's possible ways forward with that I mean we, you know, we'll need to negotiate a bit about it but I think if we took the term illusion and separated it from visual illusions illusions in painting at the level of perspective and the rest of it and began to talk more about it at this other level which artists and poets and so on have called, talked about creating 
the illusion of something which isn't actually present in the world, but which we've, we've made present, then I think we could, we could share it. But the trouble is that the critics, generous enough to think that's the way we're using illusion, they think we're using it in the sense of, oh dear, we've made a mistake. Right, right. Yes, I, I think we're, we're pretty much on the same page there. So that the the idea is that the, the brain is a kind of artist that creates these objects of wonder for us, which are themselves nothing but but but, but highly complex patterns of, of, of neural activity. Yeah, and Dad used this term object. I was rather diffident about introducing that in Soul Dust, but I thought, look, I'm saying that the brain is doing something real, which mm-hmm. we are representing as something yeah. unreal, invented. Yeah. Um, I better put my money where my mouth is and you know, name this thing it's, <laughs> it's coming up with. Um, Richard Gregory had come up with the word the, uh, the Gregandrum as, a, as the name of his, his, his real impossible triangle, um, yes. the triangle which is quite clearly a physical conundrum. So I say, well, if Gregory has invented the Gregandrum, then each of us can invent something corresponding to that, and I call it the Epsandrum. Now, yes. Pretty ugly word, I know, and it probably hasn't caught on. But unless I'm serious in the project now, I think by going out of my way to say, no, don't beat about the bush, there is something there, and if there's something there, mm-hmm. we'll give it a name. That's, we should, we should, that's what we have to do. And this, just in case um, that our listeners don't pick up the reference, this is to your use of the, the impossible triangle. As, as, a, as a metaphor for consciousness yes, uh, which, which is a, yes absolutely and which I did have done repeatedly over the years and which and is, I think people have caught up with it's, it's, it's all, we'll always jump ahead of our own ideas here. Um, when I did an interview for Moscow Centre for Consciousness Studies of Philosophy and I said look I'm just pulled over by your use of the impossible triangle as a metaphor there. What made you come up with it? Why it's completely brilliant. It solves all our conceptual problems. And I had said, yes, but <laughs> I'm not sure it does any longer because that illusion is an illusion of physics. It's about mm-hmm. seeing, seeing something, making the mistake of seeing a physical object which isn't really there. I want to use illusion in a more yeah. sense. I think it's a bit more than that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an, it, you understood in one way, it's an illusion of living in a world in which space is rather different from, from, from how it is in our world. It's a world in which physics is different, isn't it? A bit like yeah. the thick time example. Yeah, yeah actually, yes, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm mis- 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 I, I think your example's better than you. <laughs> no, sorry, in case you're right. No, I, I wasn't thinking. Of course, the fact about the impo- real impossible triangle is that it couldn't exist in physical space. Ex- okay, uh, yeah. Good. And 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 the, the people who are addressing the hard problem, are, you know, people are saying, you know, how could there be impossible triangles in our world? And they're, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to say maybe you know, somehow quantum effects could produce impossible triangles. Yes. You know, okay. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'll, 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 I'll go back on that. I, I, I don't give it up because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lovely analogy, I think, and it, 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 it's, it's a sort of signpost in the right direction, I think. It is interesting, isn't it? How I've used that. I've used that Asher, well, it's, it wasn't originally Asher, it was a Rovstoff, it wasn't Penrose either, it was, a, it was that German, German draft, a Dutch draftsman in the 1930s first came up with. Anyway, the real impossible triangle, I think it's a wonderful object, and I've used it in all sorts of other ways I've talked about. For example, as, a, as an analogy for how everything depends on our point of view. Exactly. Think of the real impossible triangle, it only works from one position and therefore I've used it even in talking about politics for example I say, so the whole point 
when we are absolutely convinced of our, some political position, we ought to just move a bit and have another look because perhaps the com- everything's going to fall apart when we don't see it just from that right position. When Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can no other, that's a very dangerous position. Don't ever let yourself stand in one position and believe you can no other. Have another look. I think that's, that's, a, I think that's a lovely application. In relation to consciousness, what's also makes it so appropriate is that when you look at the physical object that, that can be made it's, it's kind of I mean, a, 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 apart from, from one very specific perspective it's an ugly ungainly thing that doesn't look interesting yeah, interesting or fascinating and how could that produce this wonderfully elegant yeah. impossible this is, this is the, the hard problem this is how could the, 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 the water of the brain become the wine of consciousness well it's yeah, and of course it's not. Yeah, and, and you know, people have repeatedly remarked about how kind of boring the brain, <laughs> yes. and confusing, messy. Yes. yes, and so this notion of, of, of consciousness as art, this is this is something that you're currently exploring, isn't it? I know this is you're, you're currently working on this. Well, no, I, I won't say I'm working on that. I'll tell you what I'm working on, what I will be working on when I finish various other things. <laughs> but, um, I want to write. A, a longish piece, maybe it'll be a book, about the bonds of consciousness, the mm-hmm. bonds of sentience in the world. I think it's becoming it's a crucial issue to understand how far sensory phenomenology and the kind of consciousness we value so much extends in the rest of the world beyond uh. ethical, moral grounds. I mean, it's also becoming increasingly important in terms of thinking about the machines we may create in the future, which might or might not have sensory phenomenology. I think we can all agree that if they had sensory phenomenology, we would have to respect them in ways which we won't, don't at least think we have to at the moment. Again, the current conventional wisdom is that machines will just become phenomenally conscious when they become sophisticated enough, just enough interacting parts or whatever it may be. I think that's not going to happen, that sensory consciousness, phenomenal consciousness, will only come to exist in artifacts if we build it in, just as it's only come to exist in animals, because nature built it in. Um, Nature built it in for a good adaptive reason. If there's a similar adaptive reason why we might want to give phenomenal consciousness to a machine, then we may undertake the design work to do it and the design work may even be based on what we understand about the human brain by that time but at the moment I don't think there's any reason to, certainly nobody is thinking that way and I can't yet see the reasons why we might want to give phenomenal consciousness to us mm-hmm. um, uh, let alone a soul except that it worked for us in some particular circumstances if we were to put machines into those parallel circumstances, then maybe, you know, then maybe we should start thinking that way. For example, Keith, if you know, we're going to have to start exploring the heavens in ways which involve sending out surrogates on our behalf to explore deeper parts of the universe. I mean, it looks inevitable that the world is not, the Earth is not going to be enough to contain us and our ambitions. We may even, for reasons of survival, have to go and colonize other parts of the universe. At least to begin with, we can't send human beings to do that. But So we're going to have to send machines to do the job for us. They'll have to be extremely clever, of course. They'll have to be, have a kind of scientific mind, be open to possibilities, to look for things we haven't even yet programmed into them and so on. But it's also possible that we're going to have to give them a basic 
a kind of central sense of their own importance. Mm-hmm. Because supposing these machines begin to wonder why they're there, what the point of it all is, um, you know, acting as these eyes and ears for science on Earth, but having no interest in it on their own behalf, maybe they'll just give up on it. Maybe they'll think, you know, have enough of this, and, 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 and therefore they will opt out of the mission we've sent them. Now, I mean, kind of serious, and I say, well, one thing we might need to do is to give them a sense of the meaning of their quest, and that one way of doing it, because we know it's worked for human beings, might be to build into them something like a conscious self based on this sense of belonging to a world over and above uh, mm-hmm. physics and, and matter. I think that's right. I think that when people think about artificial intelligence, they, they the worries that these machines are going to be zombies. They're going to do all kinds of clever stuff, but they're not going to have any inner life. Things are not going to matter to them in the way that they matter to us. Mm-hmm. We're not going to matter to them in the way that we matter to each other. And the, the current way of thinking about consciousness, the dominant way, which sees it as a kind of as it was epiphenomenon, either, either a, an actual epiphenomenon of, of the physical world or, or some non-functional side effect of physical processes, it, is... is it leaves that question completely unanswerable. Mm. At some point, maybe this epiphenomenon would, would kick in, but we don't exactly know when or where or how. And whereas your way of thinking of it is an actual design feature that involves constructing this object that is that is monitored, this internal object that is monitored and that, ha- that creates this, uh, this this sense of having a, a rich internal life. That is, that is a piece of engineering that we could e- even, I guess, start... You know, the rudimentary ways of thinking about how we might might build it. Yes, be interesting. Actually, I, 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 I think somebody should be trying to design a, a primitive <laughs> soul, soul of that. So it doesn't seem too hard in principle. It's, it's again, maybe it's the magicians we want to talk to here. How would you create this effect? Yes, um, now, I think I think as you say, this could have huge advantages. Actually, I think it could also have huge risks, and perhaps the sort of risks you. You mentioned about the machines deciding to pursue their own ends might be actually m- increased by giving them this. Well, so long as they are just zombies, they're, they're pretty much going to do what they're mm-hmm. constructed to do. But once they have this sense of themselves as, you know, they're going to be, they're going to start becoming machine existentialists and start thinking about their existence precedes their essence. And, and so, so I think it's huge risk. But at the same time, if, they, if we're going to give them the kind of long leash control where we set them off and they're completely out of our control any, uh, any longer, and they need to fend for themselves, they need to make their way in the universe, then yes, they're going to need to have some sense of why it all matters to them. Yeah, and they may end up writing their own version of Genesis, in which <laughs> God gives them dominion over all the other creatures, including human beings. <laughs> okay. this, 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 is, this is a worry, isn't it? I mean, I think there are huge risks in doing this. Indeed, we, there are, we might create them with souls that are, as it were, more compelling. Their sense of being superior beings, as you yep, say, might right. be even greater than ours. Yes. Keith, the other thing, of course, let's put aside these, these science fictions for the moment, of course, we still have an awful lot of unanswered questions about the existence of zombies here on Earth. I mean, are animals effectively zombies? Yes. I don't mean it in the technical mm-hmm. philosophical sense, but do other animals that we share the Earth with have the same sense of self? Do they have phenomenal consciousness? It's increasingly widely held that they do. They have it in lesser and lesser degrees, maybe. But one of the 
central point of my view of it is that it doesn't really come in lesser degrees once you build in this system with its reverberatory circuits and so on mm-hmm. represents things as if they came from a higher dimension it's pretty much all or nothing I mean there can be more of it or less of it but unless it's you know reverberatory loops either mm-hmm. happen or they don't happen there's nothing in between mm-hmm. now when it comes to animals we when it's very I mean supposing something like my theory if it's right okay the, the brain creates through sentition these objects which are represented as having strange and weird properties um, and the function of that is to give us certain attitudes towards ourselves and the world we live in uh-huh. what level could we confirm the existence of any of this in animals well the moment we don't yet know what to look for in the brain though um, maybe before long we will I think we could know what to look for at the level of, of function if it's having these Consciousness is it's so important to giving us this sense of self-importance and commitment to life of the kind we have. Maybe uh, the evidence for that can be looked for, and maybe we already have examples of it in the behaviour of higher animals. I think mm-hmm. quite a few aspects of, of the behaviour, recorded behaviour of wild chimpanzees and so on, suggest that they contemplate their position in the world. They enjoy pure sensation for its own sake. They clearly have a sense a very grounded sense of self which they also uh, attribute to other creatures in, in, their, in their communities and so on. Lots of the things which I think work for us have at least the hints of them occurring in, in chimps. So maybe, we, I mean, it is worth pursuing those sorts of ideas. Mm-hmm. When it comes to looking at lizards or earthworms or butterflies or whatever it is, I'm equally convinced that there's no evidence of this at all. And therefore we shouldn't have any truck at the moment with thinking that, okay, they have some lower level of sensory phenomenality. You know, there's no reason either in their brains or in their mm-hmm. behavior to believe that's true. Now, what about animals like octopus? Have you read Peter Godfrey Smith's wonderful new book? I haven't. It's not called The Soul of the Octopus. That's a nothing like so good book. Godfrey Smith's book called He's a Philosopher, and it's called Other Minds. It's a wonderful account by a very clever and sensitive philosopher about the inner life of octopuses. He himself is a diver who lives among octopuses in his spare time. I think it's fascinating, and he does ask about the question of the hard problem. He seems to think, I'm afraid, that if the octopus's brain shows evidence of sufficiently complex cognitive complexity, that will mean it has the phenomenology, and that's you know, and there's no, no more to be said about that. Of course, I don't think that. I think we would need to look for evidence in the animal's life that it had phenomenology. And then there are interesting straws in the wind, if nothing else. I mean, like the fact that the octopuses have almost no social life. Mm-hmm. They show no evidence of theory of mind. They don't, in fact, interact with other octopuses in any significant ways. They're loners. They don't seem to have any reason to want to dwell on what's going on inside the mind of another octopus or for another human being, for that matter, even if they sometimes seem surprisingly clever in mirroring mm-hmm. the behavior of other animals or, or human beings, for that matter. Writing so got Peter, he's such uh, it's a sideline but one extraordinary thing about octopuses is they put on these wonderful colour displays um, shimmering waves of colour spread across their bodies um, and they seem to express in ways we don't yet understand the animal's emotions uh-huh. it looks like as if this, this, is, a, this is an unprivatisation that's lovely the problem here is that octopuses are colour blind 
there's no evidence at all that they can see these displays. So, if they're not being done for for, for the purpose Mm -hmm. of being seen by other creatures, other octopuses, what are they being done for? Well, I suggest that this is, in fact, these octopuses are wearing their hearts on their sleeves, and this is, in fact, a form of sentition. Um, Mm -hmm. And it derives from the fact, I'll tell you my story about this, octopuses lived before they left before they left got rid of their shells and so on they lived on the on the bottom of the sea and they developed very good camouflage so as not to be able to be seen by predators that meant they had to have colour organs in their bodies which could colour the skin in various ways Mm -hmm. so controlled by the brain which was responding to uh, light obviously but it was all seemed to occur not not controlled by the brain it's occurred controlled much lower level in the arms of the octopus but my guess is that when they left the sea floor and no longer needed to camouflage themselves they had become in some sense dependent on reading the responses involved in camouflage for understanding what was going on around them and so that the responses correspond to something like sentition and they're still occurring now has been now tied up with the inner workings of the brain and the emotional state of the octopus. Anyway, so they are. You think they they, they are internally monitoring these responses? I, th- I think they probably are. Yeah. Yeah. They're, monitor- so that- they're making responses which once corresponded to color vision, which mm-hmm. they, they don't have anymore, and but which now have assumed another function. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, that's, that's, that's I wrote a long, long letter about this, and he didn't reply. <laughs> Talking about animal consciousness, I wonder if is there room here to separate out two things. I mean, one thing we haven't much talked about is your work on the social function of the intellect. And you, uh, in your earlier work on consciousness, in in, in the the NRI and the television series that was associated with it, you had you you, you had a, a view of consciousness, or perhaps of a dis- different aspect of consciousness, maybe as introspection of one's own mental activity that then gave you a tool for thinking about other people's minds and for interacting with them and understanding them and so on. So that was a much more cognitive theory yes, of consciousness, which was, didn't introduce... I'm talking about the role of reflexive consciousness, un- being able to read one's own inner states, cognitive yeah. states, and on the basis of that to model other human beings or, one, or to model our own uh, life, mental life in the future, or in the past for that matter. I, now, I still think that's all... Go, what all goes on, theory of mind is based on this kind of internal monitoring of our own states. The first book I wrote about that, Consciousness Regained, back in 1983, was it? It had lots of very nice reviews. People took that idea up and had run with it. Mm-hmm. Theory of mind and Ryan uh, yes. is, is a very big idea in, in, in social psychology and, um, mm-hmm. and philosophy of mind, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Stuart Sutherland wrote a review saying, yeah, I can see all this is true, but I just have to be accompanied by phenomenology. How could, why couldn't I know what it's like to, for someone else to see red, in terms of perceiving red rather than green, without actually having a sensory experience which, of the kind I do? Um, now, it was almost the only really critical review of that book, mm-hmm. but it hit home, and I realised that actually, yeah, he's right. Solve one level of consciousness, but mm-hmm. it doesn't tackle the deeper question of why, it, what it's like to have experiences in the way that we do. And so, when I started on the history of the mind, that book, I start off from saying, yeah, I thought I'd solved the problem, but mm-hmm. I was persuaded I hadn't or not solved the problem 
I think is still think is the most important one, which is the heart problem and uh, of sensation. And we're not going to answer that by looking for evidence of theory of mind and so on. So we brought it back in a way. I have later come back to it because I think that uh, our sense of our own selves and what it's like to be another person is based on our introspectively our introspection of. Of, of the phenomenality, phenomenal qualities of our own lives. Exactly. You have some lovely clips in your talks, I know, of animals up, um, uh, relishing, dogs and monkeys and so on, relishing the, 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 their experience, of doing things for the sheer pleasure of the experience. I, I think there's one, I can't remember what kind of animal, sliding on the snow. Oh, the, 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 the rock, yes. The rock. Yeah. This suggests that they have this... this Evaluative response to experience. Well, the and delight the in being there, yes. The delight in being there. Yeah. And that does, as you say, seem to be on off. But then what we have in addition to that is a reflection on this, on the character of our experience and this apparatus of thinking about ourselves as, as having souls and free will mm-hmm. and, and, and specialness and all kinds, which we've built up on that. And then, of course, the social dimension of that, that we live in a world where other people have this same special yeah. inner world. And that seems to now involve bringing in this social theory of, of, of consciousness to build on the basis that's provided by, by sensation. Yeah, and I think, and, and I, I, I mean, I don't think we've yet got evidence that, that animals value this, their inner life in that way. And it's, it's something I've often quoted, the poet Byron said that the great object of life is sensation. Okay, then he goes on to feel that we exist even though in pain. Now, I don't know of any animal which does things which hurt uh-huh. um, in order because it makes them feel centered and and and, and being uh-huh. there in a incontrovertible way. Um, uh-huh. That would be fascinating if if we ever uh-huh. saw it. But I, I, I certainly don't, don't don't know of anything like that. Yeah. Well, there's a big step between between enjoying this sensation and enjoying being a creature who has sensations like that you know, sort of, yes. uh, thinking, exactly. in, in, yes. and this, this is something you've, you've written on recently haven't you about suicide and you suggest that, that the notion of suicide may be, a, may be a meme a virus that has infected some societies or infected uh, all societies I guess at some point and, and obviously extremely harmful well, I don't think it has to start off as a meme. I mean, I, in, in, in what I've been writing about suicide, I'm trying to, uh, I'm discussing the alarming fact that human beings, having discovered that what death means, no other animals understand the consequences of dying as we do. Having discovered that death leads to the removal of ourselves from the world, and in particular, the, the plotting out of, of, of thoughts and feelings and so on, that some people may think of that as a solution, mm-hmm. not as a risk, but as a solution. Because mm-hmm. there are times in all our lives when we would simply rather just escape. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, if we have the means to escape, the logical thing to do might just be to, to do that then. So it's really not too difficult. If we realize that when we're in pain, whether it's physical pain or psychic pain, we have the way out, then there's a, I think there is and has been in the past a real risk that we'll act, even often impulsively, to take that route. This is something which didn't arise before human beings began to understand 
the consequences for themselves of dying, what it means to die. No, no animal, so far as we know, has the slightest idea that if it killed itself, it jumped off a cliff or whatever it may be, that the consequence would be that it wouldn't feel anything anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, you might realize it would break a leg or something, but <laughs> the, the idea that that would result in oblivion, it simply doesn't occur to them. So no animal could choose that because they actually were seeking uh, to oblivion in the way in which you know, made familiar both of course by, uh, by the, the awful examples of people who follow that course but the poets who speculate about it again and again you know, Hamlet's famous soliloquy we are not to be it's about just you know, all the reasons why it would be better to stop living and stop feeling how easy it would be to do that although then he comes to the point that yeah but the problem is that, that perhaps death won't result in total oblivion. We might go on dreaming after death, for example. That's the other interesting idea, of course, because it may be one of the antidotes to the suicide meme is that we might be persuaded either by thinking about it or by uh, what we're told by religious authorities or whatever else it may be that actually, yeah, that you don't there isn't an easy way out. You don't stop being by killing yourself. Um, you may have to go, go on living in uh, a world which is going to, where your life will actually be hell, literally, because you chose uh, this me mm. this way out of the life which was given to you by your creator. Now, but come, let me come come back to the, the lower. I mean, I think there are, there are indeed other antidotes to suicide. I think that uh, that uh, consciousness the delight in being the sense of our importance and, and that if we don't exist nothing else is going to replace us because we're not part of the material world almost feels like it gives us an obligation to stay in there to make the most of it to relish this sense of this, this opportunity which we've had for as long as we, we can possibly spin it out and that that at many times could have been what kept people going when everything else seemed to conspire against them. There's a, do, do you know the book Lavengro, George Borrow? George, the, the, the Romany. Yeah, the uh, Romany, I tell you, yeah, his inter interaction with, with the Romanies in Norfolk. Wonderful passage in which the author is, he's been reading Goethe and he's, he's, he's thinking about, about, about suicide in the way the young Vetter did in Goethe's novel, and that life has no point to it and so on. Well, this gypsy friend just said, look, what a fool you could be. Are you really thinking of, of, of ending this life which has been given to you? And Boris says, well, yes, I, it's, life is nothing but pain and misery and pointlessness. And, I think, and the, the gypsy says, well, there's the wind on the heath, brother. <laughs> there are many beautiful things. Um, there's, there's my sight and smell and, and life, brother. Don't let go. And it totally struck a chord that with a whole lot of Victorian romantics who went on the endless paintings called The Wind on the Heath. And in a sense, they're, they're objective testimony to the, to the glories of being there in a world of light and sound and smells and so on, which in, it's, in some ways, at least it doesn't make up for any kind of other tragedy that may have befallen us, but nonetheless, it's undeniably a reason for going on living. That, that, that's really interesting. I mean, just one thing that occurs to me there is that have you thought about this in relation to depression? Because could it be that depression, yes. depression, does that, could that involve some sort of damping of the? Of yes, the I mean I, I have, and I've, and I've written about that. And I, I don't, you know, 
it's 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 it's, 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 it's just speculation, but um, sure. uh, I've it's people who are depressed describe their experience as the one in which the colour has gone out of the world. Right. Um, yes. It sounds sometimes as what they're really talking about is that they are kind of reverting to a level of blindside, not literally. Yes. Sensation is no longer significant for them. And if it, sensory phenomenology is based on, on reverberating loops in the brain, then as these, by adjusting the gain of these loops, it's conceivable mm-hmm. that, the, that, that the activity could 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 try to a stop and the time would be returning from the thick present to the physical instant which might well have experiential consequences of the kind which they seem to be describing that's that's really interesting your work is packed I find with ideas for whole research programs which uh, I hope will be taken up and and, and explored in in, in the detail they deserve another thing that just occurred to me there when you were talking about relishing momentary experience as an antidote to depression was I was talking some time ago to, to Russ Herbert um, yes, who you know who developed this method of descriptive experience sampling, it's a way of sampling inner experience so the, the subjects wear, wear little earpiece and it bleeps at random points during the day and at those points they, their, their task is simply to write down the, the contents of their experience at that moment in, a, in as pure a form as they can without any kind of interpretation, just what they were feeling what they were experiencing at that moment and then Russ um, uh, debriefs them and tries to talk them through their reports and, and again to get at the I'm a little bit sceptical about the idea that there is a pure, unfiltered experience yes. that can be yes. accessed there. But anyway, but th- this is what he does. One interesting thing about this is it's, it's meant simply to be a descriptive technique for getting evidence about, about it in our life. But it, it also seems to have great therapeutic value. Russ told me that people who've, who've been through this technique have said that if, uh, you know, a few a day of doing this has been more beneficial to them than years of therapy. Because what it's making them do, of course, is concentrate mm. on the moment-by-moment moment experience. And their experience is often that, that that's rather better than they thought it was. Mm. That though they have this narrative of themselves as having a, a very poor quality of life, they find that moment by moment they were tasting the coffee, they were feeling the warmth of the of the sun, and so on. And, and uh, this technique fo- uh, causes them to focus on that. So maybe that is a way of boosting the the the, the effects of, of the, the sensation system. Yes, interestingly enough, it's it's the kind of opposite of of, of what's recommended in, in Buddhism. Get rid of, <laughs> of of any impact from the world. <laughs> And it's also the opposite of what a lot of therapy involves. Yes. Not, not that I want to have a go at this, but that involves theorizing about yourself, yes. about trying to construct a narrative about why things are. And maybe that may work, but if, if, if what makes life worth living is the immediate quality of sensation at the, the, at the foundational level, then, then that sort of thing is, is, seems to me more likely to, to, to help. And on another point, you, you, this idea of, of suicide, it, it, the, the, the attractions of suicide also depend on something that only we have. It's a fallacy because we're imagining that things will be better once we've killed ourselves. It could be better. I mean, if you know, if one thing we can be sure of is you're not going to go on hurting when you're dead. So, well, if, you're, if, if, if what is if you you find the situation you're in intolerable and and you want to end it, then then success. I mean, you have really escaped it. I mean, the problem is that, of course. I, if only you were wiser, you would realize that this state you're in is temporary, that the, all, everything suggests that, that people recover from these momentary sense, times of despair and go on to lead full and, and happy lives. So, so you're making a strategic mistake, but in terms of the, the moment, I mean, you know, what's just to say you haven't, you haven't succeeded, just as you know, when you take an anesthetic to get rid of pain, it works. Of course, most people taking anesthetics count on the fact they're going to, they're going to recover from it. Most would not take the anaesthetic 
if they thought they weren't. But what I've called self-euthanasia is, in a sense, killing yourself in order to permanently anesthetize your mind. Well, I, I certainly think you're right that it's a strategic mistake, but isn't there some sort of assumption on the continuity of self that that after this has happened, then there will be no pain, there will be just peace, there will be quiet, but there will still be a minimal self-existing, well, will at least not be, but of course there won't be a self-existing no. at all, so you won't have escaped anything, you won't exist. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the, you know, not everyone uh, has the same thoughts about it. I think many people, yes, as you having, um, imagine the state having killed themselves in which they're actually observing the consequences of that for mm-hmm. people around them and so on. Um, right. I think that there are others are much more in sense just purely egotistical. They, they don't care about mm-hmm. the effects they're going to have on others. They just have to be rid of this mm-hmm. unbearable pain they're in. And I don't think most of those even consider that, you know, they may be going to continue in some sense or recover from it in another world. So coming back to this question of continuity of consciousness, when we speculate about what would follow the death of our minds, I think we've got a very misleading analogy, and that is sleep. Sleep is obviously an extraordinarily significant event in our lives, and one of the, something which teaches us something which is both true and also potentially very dangerous. When we go to sleep, we lose consciousness. Mm-hmm. Every time it's ever happened, we've recovered it. And the recovery of consciousness is an astonishing thing. Out of nothing, our self comes back into being and has continu- continuity with the self which disappeared when we went to sleep. Um, having had this as the only evidence we mm-hmm. know of, for sure of what happens when we lose consciousness there's every reason to think that we might survive death in the same way that we will having fallen asleep conventionally into death we will still reawaken in 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 an afterlife and I think it's almost reasonable to assume that that would be the case I mean everything suggests that that's the way the mind works and it's so I think that I'm not sure it's true of, of suicides but it's certainly true of, of people comforted in, uh, when facing death by, by the thought that actually you know I've every reason to think that's not what it's going to be it's take only there's only scientific evidence no personal mm. evidence that death, death will result in oblivion and it's interesting how, how built into this, this way of thinking that there's a sort of dualism, a dualism of worlds, in fact. Yeah. As, you know, Hamlet says that, that, that undiscovered country. Yeah. That there's another world that our conception of ourselves is one that somehow demands that, that there be another world we could enter after this body dies. Because, uh, what happens after death? Well, we know perfectly well what happens after death. Yes, um, but you're, of course you're right, and it's very interesting. We don't, we don't spell it out, but the, this other world clearly isn't well, for some people, it's just a repetition of, of where we of, of this world in which we just have a bit more fun, more virgins or whatever it may be. But for most people, it isn't. It's a diff- different kind of world. And so it, it built into this is the idea, yes, of a universe which we can't contact while we're here on Earth, but nonetheless which we have inklings of through, um, through consciousness all the time. And so when we do die, we're going to live in pure consciousness or something. Nick, it's, look, one question I wanted to ask is this. You're, you're an atheist. You've written um, uh, a book arguing for the impossibility of paranormal supernatural phenomena. But my sense is that you're not as... And I think you actually coined the term for... I think you suggested to Richard Dawkins that there were some memes are like viruses. 
Yeah, I mean, yes, back when he was writing The Selfish Gene, I, he had come up with this lovely idea of the meme. And I said, yeah, Richard, that's just like a virus. And, of course, he, uh, he picked that up and ran with it. And he thinks that means like religion and, like, I, I guess, notions like the soul are, are harmful are benef- are not beneficial at all. Whereas I think you have a much more, perhaps not to religion as such, but to certain notions like the soul. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you think these are benign, and not just merely benign, but actually highly adaptive yes. means. No, I absolutely do think that. And, I, and, I, and you're right that, that I'm, I'm, my friends come, their eyes get wider and wider when I say that. Um, <laughs> Because they assume that you know, they assume that being sceptical or more than sceptical, dismissive of religion, means I'm dismissive of spirituality. Now, I, not in the least. I, I think that spirituality is one of the greatest gifts of, that humans have. We're, we're, we're born to it, and it, and it arises out of the nature of our consciousness. It's inevitable, mm-hmm. given the nature of our magical consciousness, that we will speculate about a soul which inhabits a world over and above the body and that, that will be something shared by other, other human beings that doesn't necessarily lead on, lead on to any religious ideas but nonetheless it obviously was, was and is fertile ground for religion I say in soul dust that I think of actually that institutional religion um, basically have been parasitic on human spirituality they are viruses in that sense and they've kind of hijacked it and taken it up over for themselves, and that's that's a tragedy. I think humans mm-hmm. uh, need to be allowed their native spirituality back without it being um, you know, everyone saying, "Oh well, what the name? What's the name of that religion?" <laughs> yeah. I, I, I I think this is, this is a wonderful actually. It's one of the reasons that I, I when I read Soldust, I was I was. Uh, as they say, blown away by it. I, what I liked about it in particular was that the fact that the, in the first chapter of the book you, you explicitly articulate a very strong form of physicalism. You're a type A physicalist. There is no, there are no, um, there's no explanatory gap. An alien a psychologist who had no, was not phenomenally conscious could understand everything about us. The Mary in her room could know everything. You're absolutely clear about this. But then you go on to develop this wonderful uh, story about the richness and the, the spirituality of human experience. And so you show how these two things are not incompatible, and, and I love that. I think that's. I think there's a there's a stereotype of physicalism as a reductive, in a bad sense, doctrine, a doctrine that somehow takes the magic and mystery and wonder and the life out of the world. And I think that's that's. Oh, you know, Keith, so that's, that's why we're friends and we, we share these ideas. And, but it's, uh, it's, as you know, it's it's a losing battle on you know, on two sides. I mean, you know, the the the. the uh, um, uh, the, the, the philosophers who reject it because they think we've gone soft and equally the very attractive philosophers like Philip Goff and so on who reject it because they think yes they're just trying to get their cake and eat it but they haven't actually gone far enough um, in rejecting physicalism I mean, I, I'm absolutely with the people like Philip I, I, I've no time for what I call conservative realists who think that we can explain the wonder of consciousness that the phenomenality can be real mm-hmm. it, it can actually be there and we can explain it physically, no, it's, too, it's too weird, too wonderful too strange for that, I agree about that that's why I think it's merely an intentional intentional object, it's merely something yeah. uh, mm-hmm. that inhabits this illusory fictional world that, um, no. um, the other thing I, I, w- I really wanted to ask you about, I mean, throughout your work there's, right from the start, there's been a strong 
emphasis on, on, on an evolutionary perspective. But I think you'd say that is very important to all thinking about the mind. And you, you've done pioneering work in evolutionary psychology yourself. But a lot of people, I find, are worried about evolutionary psychology. On the one hand, there are people who say, well, you're just making up stories about how it could have been, and there's no way of testing these. And also people get worried about the political implications of it. They think that by giving an evolutionary explanation of a trait, we're somehow validating the trait and saying that it's that it's you know that we should not not condemn it. Yeah, um, we should accept it. I agree. I mean, on the question of Josser's stories, I mean, I feel guilty. I think I think we do, and I think it's a wonderful exercise to have yeah. stories about how things could have been because sometimes we need what philosophers call proofs in principle. You know, mm-hmm. We want to show how something could have worked to produce the phenomena which we observe in nature. Many times, you know, it looks as if the nothing could work. If you're trying, let's talk about the evolution of the eye, for example. Many time and again, people said the, there is no story which could be talked about, told about the evolution of the eye without a designer being present. Yeah. So any story which produced a possible method by which little by little the eye could have evolved is better than none. I mean, it shows it can be done. It may not be the right answer, but at least the, we don't only have God as the, as the alternative explanation. And I think, you know, in my own writing about evolution of sensory consciousness, I'm, I'm, I, I do that. I'm, I'm looking for an explanation which could, in principle, deliver. Because I feel obliged to do that. It's all, I, you know, I can't say, I think this structure is there in the brain and it has, it has these wonderful consequences. But as of yet, I've no explanation at all of what it, cor- what it corresponds to in physical or physiological terms or how it got there. I think it's our obligation to tell stories if we haven't done anything better and the point about stories is that in the end we hope they'll connect with the truth some of them may not do so I don't think methodologically there's anything wrong with just those stories unless that's you know we think that's always going to be enough and we then don't have to follow them through and look for the kind of evidence which would in fact turn them from modern stories into Right. explanations, but I don't think it's just true of evolutionist psychology. It's been yes. true, true of the history of science, but lots of yes. plus in stories from Aristotle onwards. You know, some of them turn out to be good ones, and some of them don't. Look at the stories of the universe. I mean. We're probably still telling just so stories about the universe. String theory, for example. You know, lots of people think it's a jolly good try, but it, it probably isn't the final answer. So what is it? It's a just so story. Now, nobody thinks that was a bad idea. But to come to your point about, about, how, about how evolutionary psychology is perceived and received. Yes, of course there are people who misuse ideas of evolutionary psychology to do just what you say which is to say that what is out there and has evolved for Darwinian reasons is something which has to be there and which we must accept as a kind of uh, as having some kind of ethical value um, mm-hmm. but you know that's simply making that old fallacy of, 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 uh, which, which you and others drew attention to of, of, uh, that's, but that the what is ought to be yes what is ought to be and that's part of it I think if evolutionary psychology for me has just been a way of trying to make sense of the phenomena we see in the world which uh, it's we cry out for explanation and which evolutionary theories seem to provide the best possible solutions to now it is true that a lot of evolutionary psychologists have been very cocky about this having come up 
with an account which seems to work. They then insist that there couldn't be any other account, that the world and sentence dance to the tune of the theories they've come up with. Mm-hmm. One of the most notorious examples, I suppose, now is sex differences. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great successes of evolutionary psychology seemed to be that it could explain uh, in Darwinian terms why male and human brains were different and male and human behaviour were followed very different patterns. It's becoming increasingly clear that this story was far too simplistic. Uh, mm-hmm. And, I mean, basically it was a, it's scientifically wrong. It's been demonstrated by other evolutionary psychologists that this is the case. And they've come up with more sophisticated ideas. We now think of sex differences as being alternative strategies mm-hmm. which are present probably in all brains, male and female. In other words, you can you can be born a woman and still have both male and female strategies present in your brain and, and equally the other way around. Whether or not these strategies come to the surface is going to depend on the environment you mm-hmm. find in. And in fact, evolutionary psychologists earlier on had discovered lots of other examples of this, how the environment can turn on a completely different set of behavioral patterns. Right. People hadn't thought this was the case with sex differences, which seem to be so set, but the more sensitive they've become to uh, the reality of how the environment affects people's sense of their own their own gender and their own possibilities, they've come to realize that actually the truth very likely is that this is another case of where different behavioral strategies are being switched by the environment. So you could switch on uh, stereotypical male behavior in a girl by exposing her to the right kind of or the wrong kind of environment and same with boys. So but so I thought I'm making what point I'm making is yeah evolutionary psychologists got it wrong. Mm-hmm. They've been corrected by others following in their footsteps, following, using other evidence from biology and evolution to try and come up with a more sophisticated idea right. of what actually leads to the, the actual sex differences which we observe in, in behavior. And the more we are aware of those, the more we'll be able to act on behalf of, 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 of individuals who, you know, either find, feel, find themselves trapped or are happy with the, the roles they've been assigned and help them to, 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 to live more fulfilling lives. It's a clear example of whether, where evolutionary psychology has come up with the answers to its own excesses and, yes. and, and moved on to better, better things. And, you know, the uh, people who, Hilary Rose, Stephen Rose and so on, who want to think that the evolutionary psychology is flawed from the start, are simply uh, outlawing a form of, mm-hmm. of, of, of discovery and a potential application which undoubtedly can and will do good. Well, uh, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I can endorse everything you've just said. I think you said it beautifully. And, um, and uh, as, as Dan Dennett points out, you know, the, this method of reverse engineering, which is all that evolutionary psychology is really. Without that method, I mean, we, we just don't have the tools to understand what we're dealing with. I mean, we don't, we don't even know how to describe what it is. We're dealing with a functional system. We need to think about, yeah. about its evolution in order to, to conceive of it even as a functional system. So, sure, there may be some bad evolutionary psychology, but the cure, as you say, is, is, is better, yeah. less cocky evolutionary psychology. And, I, and, the, and the anti-evolutionary psychology efforts of latest, of course, is Ian Wilson's attack 
um, you know, just show how, how the opposition are, are really scraping the barrel, barrel to try and undermine what in fact is a, 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 a thoroughly respectable and traditional research program in science. Indeed, and I, I don't, I, evolutionary psychology is sometimes singled out as if it's a, I mean, it's just evolutionary theorizing mm. applied to the mind, except perhaps in certain applications and certain um, misapplications of it. I don't think there's anything different in the project itself to, to the evolutionary study of, of, of the digestive system yeah. or the reproductive system or anything else. Of course, no, you're right. Yeah. Well, Nick, I've talked to you for a long time. I, I, could keep, I could keep on talking to you for a very long time. Okay, we'll talk again soon. We will but, I, <laughs> but I thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this. I hope the listeners will enjoy it too. I think you, it's, of all the people to talk to about consciousness, I, you're, you're, I think the most, the most fascinating. Uh, you've had such a wide well, experience. Don't, don't say that because I'm about. hoping your blog series is going to talk to a lot of other people. <laughs> you start off. By well, well, uh, you're too modest, Nick. I'm really. I, but I won't. I won't embarrass you by by, by going into a eulogy. Okay. But I'll just thank you again. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And thank you, Keith. Thank you.